welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. And in this episode, we're speaking with Joelle Thompson, who's a journalist, wine wine writer and author um, based uh, just outside, where at the moment, just outside of Wellington in New Zealand. Um, Joelle's been involved in the wine scene for some time, um, writing about wine, um, learning about wine and teaching about wine. So right now, let's go have a chat with Joelle. So hi Joelle, nice to have you on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me, it's nice being on it. Yeah, no, it's great, and just for our listeners, we're um, uh, on in Auckland here, and uh, Joelle is, um, I was going to say Wellington, but you're not quite Wellington, are you? No, well I'm sort of between Wellington and Paikokariki at the moment, long story, we're having remediation work on our apartments, so yeah. Ah, okay, okay, and so um, just for our listeners, we're um, speaking over Skype, but um all seems to be uh, nice and clear at the moment. So, uh, Joelle, t- tell us a little bit about how it's been. It's been some time now, hasn't it, that uh, you started thinking that uh, wine might hold a bit of interest for you? It has been quite some time, <laughs> um, longer than I ever thought when I was younger that I would ever, I suppose, talk about anything. For when you're young, everything seems so bright and new and. Uh, when I was uh, young, I didn't really get into alcohol until I sort of left school and drank a wee bit of New Zealand wine in the kind of late 80s. And there wasn't that much around in those days. It was sort of Muller Turgau. But I have to say, I sort of instantly liked wine. And I it, it just trickled on from there. I started dating a guy who was a university dropout who wanted to cook, who was an incredibly talented cook, and we just went down the rabbit hole of wine together and it all snowballed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and what was it like back then? It would have been... um you know, you've uh, you've mentioned Muller Turgau and uh, there wouldn't have been a lot around, not like there is now, not a lot of variety for you. No, there really wasn't. It was all sort of von Siedler Muller Turgau in a mottled clear glass bottle made by Montana Wines, which was actually a lovely, refreshing, light wine. And, and lightness, I think, is actually still a quality I really value and highly prize in wine. But um, to answer the question, I think... Uh, perhaps the real kind of gate opener to another world of amazingness was when my dad brought along a big buttery Aussie Chardonnay to RO Street Cafe uh, when my sisters and I were all teenagers and around it was around that time late late 80s and he pulled this big yellow wine into a glass and I thought well I haven't seen that before tasted it and went oh my god that's I, Dad, what is this? He goes, oh, it's nothing, Joe. It's just a cheap Aussie Chardonnay. Well, that was, you know, <laughs> the yeah. beginning of the end, the beginning <laughs> of my love affair with big, buttery Chardonnays. Right, right. So, sorry, and how old were you then? Oh, um, 19 or 20, right, I okay. guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, mean, okay. I think it showed me that there was something more to wine. I mean, I liked the light wines, but we, my friends and I were sort of trying to find other things. So we looked at things like Blue Nun and Black Tower. I mean, I know it's easy to laugh now, but there just wasn't very much variety. There is so much variety now. Mm. And then we sort of saw Sauvignon Blanc, but that seemed um, edgy and different to us, uh, a harder flavor to like perhaps at that young 
time. Um, and then this big Chardonnay just blew me away. And I thought, wow, there are lots of different types of wines. So I started looking for more. Right, right. Okay. And what were you doing at the time? Oh, at the time I was working as a personal assistant to Fetu Tarakatni Sullivan um, and being her secretary and cutting out newspaper clippings. And she was an amazing woman. Uh, she passed away a couple of years ago, just an incredible, um, the longest serving MP for Southern Maori and very smart. And she invited me to have dinner at Bellamy's at Parliament with her husband and her a couple of times. And we drank really nice wine there and I had no idea what it was, but it, again, it just kept planting the seed of, oh, there's lots of different types of wines. Yeah. And then she said to me, um, you know, you're a bit too smart to be sitting here cutting out newspaper cuttings. Why, why don't you go to university and do something else? And I was sort of drifting along a bit. So I started writing articles and tried to get into journal school. And, and then in 89, I got in and, and that, you know, and then I started thinking about writing about things I liked. Right. Okay. Okay. So you, you got got into journalism school, and then obviously you you had an interest in wine, and so that was well. I suppose you, you started thinking, why don't I write about wine? Well, that was probably a few years further down the track. I mm. think I was too interested in drinking wine at that stage. Right. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and drinking anything really, but as a student, but. Um, I went to Tauranga in 1990 and did a TV production skills course with Chaz Tugud, who mm -hmm. was an amazing man, uh, who had a love of surfing, hence Tauranga, uh, for the course. And then I, yeah, started drinking all kinds of different wines with friends, um, landed in Dunedin the next year to work at a TV station, and that's where I started dating this guy who was really into food and not in any kind of special way, but just liked the process of cooking. He really liked red wine. So we were drinking Fairhall River Claret, um, avoiding Veluto Rosso like the plague, um, and just trying to find new flavours. And he suggested to me that I could write about wine. Right, okay. And, and so the wines that you started drinking, the reds, were they New Zealand wine or were they imported mainly or...? A, um, a little bit of both, but mainly New Zealand. Okay. Yep. Uh, I remember my dad gave him a bottle of cheap Spanish wine for Christmas, and it had a cage wrapped around it. It was very cool packaging to us and looked very exotic. And then we went to Europe together and lived in the UK, and that is where um, both of our love affair with wine just went bang. Oh, my God, look at all this wine from Portugal and Spain and France and and so we started going to tastings and, again, probably not at any super special level, but just our eyes were opened to the sheer diversity of wine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just um, a, lot, a lot more there for you to, for you to try. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I have to say the Christmas before we left, uh, we, we were always, he was always saying to me, let's both go and buy a wine, put it in a paper bag. And then we won't know what it is and we can taste it with each other. And so we kept doing that, which was really fun. Mm. We didn't ask questions or anything. We just, it was just to try and make us think. Mm. I don't know what we were even trying to think, but it was interesting. Uh, and one of the most delicious wines of my very early days getting into wine was Kumi River Semion. And 
I took it to Christmas dinner with him and because we had a date Christmas dinner, the two of us, before our family thing, and that wine blew our minds. Right. Okay. And was it, would that would have been fairly uh, early-ish for, um, for what they were doing out of there? I suppose they would have been going for a little while, wouldn't they, have Kumu, Kumu River? Well, Kumu was um, San Marino Vineyards in its former incarnation, right. but making more fortified wines. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the exact year they became Kumu River, but probably maybe mid-80s, perhaps. I could be a little bit out with that. So they would have been going maybe half a decade or a bit longer, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was their early days of dry New Zealand wine. And, God, it was great even then, even with a variety they don't even use anymore, Semillon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and what were you what were you doing at the time? Still, were you, had you continued on with journalism or? Oh, a little bit. Um, I was managing an art gallery, kind of writing on the side. Um, there was a bit of a recession at the time and um, that guy that I keep mentioning him and I were just saving our butts off to go overseas. We're quite young. So, yeah, we went to London. In London, he worked as a chef. I worked, um, again, as a personal assistant to someone at Warner Brothers and that was very well paid, not writing, but I got to drink quite amazing wines uh, with my boss and just at work and you know being in London opened our eyes well obviously to so many things but it was a great place to get into wine back then yes yeah 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 and anything in particular can you remember anything that sort of stood out was it mainly French that you were um, Um, drinking or was it all sorts that um, uh, it was all kinds of things we drank uh, I guess a couple of things that really blew us away were Portuguese reds because Mm -hmm. they were kind of on trend and they were red wines rather than fortified port or anything. Um, and they were so affordable and quite – they ranged from rustic and awful to to plump, big, juicy deliciousness. Uh, and also South African Sauvignon made by flying winemakers who were Kiwis. And that blew us away because it oh. tasted like Kiwi Sauvignon. Mm. Uh, and then we went to France and drove around the south and that blew us away. You could, you know – rock up to a roadside instead of a fruit stall, a roadside wine stall with an honesty box and fill up your bottle of any kind with <laughs> wine. Um, and so we thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. But we quickly learned that there was the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Um, so we ended up just buying bottled wine really cheaply and having all these go- – I, I love med reds still – and the Mediterranean reds around the south of France are just incredible wines. Cote de Rhone's, wines from the Languedoc. There's a lot of international grapes like Chardonnay and Shiraz and, or Syrah and Cabernet, you know, all those kind of well-known things grown down there for recognisability. But it's the more rustic, more indigenous things that aren't so well-known. Carignan, again, some Syrah, Grenache, blends of those kind of unusual Lesser known grapes, they they are really some of the best value wines on the planet. Mm, mm. And like affordable, but also super delicious. Such a ripe, beautiful climate around the Mediterranean. You know, dry summers, hardly any rainfall, most of it in winter. So grapes are in great condition and it's not hard to make very good wine in a place like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that so that was um then did you, sorry, you came back to Dunedin after that? Is it where you landed sort of next after coming back from 
eventually, no, I came back to Wellington then. Right. Yep. Um, and then I, and that was 94 when I came back and started working at Capital Times full-time in journalism, finally. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing I negotiated to do there was start a wine column. Right. I was really passionate about that. And, oh, do you know about wine? Said the editor in the interview. And I said, yeah, yeah, I've just been traveling all over France and, you know, I know lots about it. Uh, so she said, well, if you think you do, um, I'm willing to give it a go. But, you know, she was, seemed quite skeptical and probably correctly so. So I, I started writing a few wine columns and she really liked what I was doing. I think I wrote with more confidence about it because I felt so connected to it. Uh, and I realized after about three columns that I kind of needed to seriously get some wine knowledge you know, it was one thing to know a bit and have some fun, beautiful travel experiences that were rich with anecdotes, but quite another thing to underpin it with knowledge. So I started going to regional wines and spirits in Wellington to wine tastings run by Raymond Chan, who passed away mm. uh, about six weeks ago now, um, mid-February. Um, and that quickly helped me to develop my knowledge and really showed what a hugely vast subject wine can be. And I felt a little bit um, blown away, actually, and enrolled in the New Zealand Certificate in Wine at Wellington High School, uh, which I went to every week for about eight weeks. We tasted all these amazing wines and learnt quite a lot of information about Kiwi wine, but also global wine knowledge, just kind of a more than a once over lightly, a little bit of depth. Uh, and it, that was great. That I thought, okay, cool, this is good. Now I get it. Now I realize I need to get into wine in a serious way if I'm going to write about it. So I kept, um, I kept trying to do wine courses. I enrolled in a winemaking and viticulture course in Hawke's Bay uh, at EIT, Eastern Institute of Technology. I uh, hated the science part of it and really found it too hard to study that and work full-time. It was just the science was overwhelming for me. Um, So I didn't finish that, but I enjoyed writing, um, planning things like planning a theoretical vineyard, which was part of that course. And that fueled a lot of writing in those early days for me. And and when you first started doing the the column in in Wellington, what, what was the New Zealand wine scene like? Was it it's starting to get quite established. Were there other people writing about wine? Did most of the papers yeah. then start to have a wine column? And Yeah, I guess they, w- they were starting to. Uh, the Dominion had a great wine column by Warren Barton, and the Evening Post had a column that was written by Baxter Fagan, who is still around in the wine scene in Taupo somewhere, I think. And he was a wine tutor. He was a, my wine tutor at Wellington High School. And he worked at O'Reilly's, I think, or Glengarry's. He worked at a wine store. Lovely man and really fun, down-to-earth writer with some quite quirky knowledge that made for a very fun and lovely column to read. Um, And then they changed who they had doing that. But, yeah, they had – I think the newspapers then were much more adventurous in who they – chose to write but but always experts people who actually had knowledge there's been i've seen so many people come and go Mm. with writing about wine Mm. whenever Mm. you get someone who 
is famous and likes wine. I've got to say, it doesn't work. You know, you've got to be a writer. You've got to have some knowledge. Otherwise, it just falls flat. Mm. I mean, I realised so quickly, even though I was a trained journalist, that you really learn journalism more on the job and that if I was going to write about wine, I needed to really learn properly about that too. And, I, you know, ignorance is bliss, and I'm really glad I started writing about wine when I did because if I'd learnt anything, I would never have had the audacity to think that I could have. Right, yeah, yeah. And, so, well, and sometimes that's what life's about, isn't it? It's about, you know, having that a little bit of naivety and a little bit of, I'll just give it a go, and then... Um, realizing, well, maybe you need to um, just sort of almost backfill with um, a, a, a bit of knowledge that just gives the, just, just creates more of a fullness to the experience and what you're in, in your your writing, doesn't it? As you, Absolutely, um, yeah. Um, that's a great great description. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't try things if we knew the danger, would we? No, no. Well, that's right. No, these no. Yeah, and, and and the effort that's required. You know, there's lots of things you you get you get started on in um, ventures you get involved with, and if you look back and go, oh, I, might, <laughs> I might have thought. <laughs> Thought twice about this if I knew what I was getting myself into, but I think that's yeah. um, part of the part of the benefit, isn't it? Just um, uh, you know, being uh, prepared to have a go and experiment and try things out, um, and then <laughs> and then you add up the cost later. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think that's a wonderful description, actually. Mm. I, yeah, I, you know, I always thought after a while, I thought, God, I was so audacious. I think well, actually, like you say, that's life. You just mm. you wouldn't try things if you knew mm. the danger. No, no, um, that's right. That's and right. thank God we don't. This yeah. is why I, I don't like the sound of apps and things that can predict what we're going to, how long we're going to live, and things. I think, mm. oh, I don't want to know. No, you know, no, no. It's part of the adventure, isn't it? Live around all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So that and and so so you 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 did the did a bit of the studies down at. Um, Oh, over on the um, in the in the Hawkes Bay, over on the east coast, um, and then did you go on and do do something else as as well that was sort uh-huh. of a bit more suited to what yeah, you wanted I, to do? Yeah, I wanted to. I think my journey kind of um, became more about journalism for a while there. So mm. I was at Capital Times for quite a few years and edited it, edited the newspaper for the last year or so that I was there, mm-hmm. and then I got offered a job in a magazine in Auckland. Um, called FQ Entertaining, uh, which only lasted just under a year. But I moved up there uh, with my partner at the time and had the baptism by fire from newspapers into magazines, quite a different world and a much more visual one and great for me, really amazing to learn more about publishing. And I had so – I was given wonderful, incredible opportunities to write wine columns in – very big, well-known magazines, which were part of ACP Media, which is now Bauer Media. Yeah. So at one time, I had a wine column in the Christchurch Press, uh, the New Zealand Home and Entertaining, Your Home and Garden, where else? Oh, God knows. Uh, there were so many papers that I was writing for and magazines. I think because I was, in those days, you know, I was a lot younger than any other wine writer in New Zealand, and... There was probably only one other woman who was intermittently writing about wine. And publishing publishers in Auckland really enjoyed what they saw as a breath of fresh air. Mm. And we're all 
publishers or everyone's always looking for that breath of fresh air and the long I came and it was just being in the right place at the right time. And so I wanted to underpin my knowledge more and started investigating the Master of Wine qualification and then I got pregnant. So that put paid to that because I couldn't even stand the smell of wine when I was pregnant. Oh, uh, and I never... What's that? Sorry. That's unfortunate. <laughs> uh, it was very unfortunate. And quite a few editors said, how are you going to do this? Do you want to get someone else to <laughs> fill your shoes until you can, like until you've had the baby? And I did consider that for a while. Uh, and I did investigate that a bit. And the one person I asked said, oh, I'm not sure if I can. I thought, oh, okay. I said, look, I'll just keep doing it. I've got loads of backlog of notes, wine notes. Um, and so I just kept writing and then I started being a freelancer at home and never really came back to wine education until about eight years ago. Right. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I was immersed in motherhood and writing and I found the juggling between those two um, was pretty intense. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, so what, what happened eight years ago? What... Um, yeah, well, it, would be, it is eight years ago, actually. So after the second um, lot of Christchurch earthquakes, um, Celia Hay, who is uh, the owner, founder, director of the New Zealand School of Food and Wine in Auckland, mm-hmm. she packed up, can't remember, eight or nine banana boxes full of personal possessions with her three children and drove north out of Christchurch after living there all her life and establishing a really successful school of food and wine uh, which was in the red zone, uh, and she just thought, I can't do this anymore. So they moved to Auckland, and she contacted loads of people, including myself, uh, and just to see, you know, wine and food experts, she wanted to see how they could be involved in her school, if they could be, and she asked if I could do some tutoring. And so I did a little bit of part-time tutoring, and it went really well. Well, the students liked the style of presenting information that I had. Like, I always try to be down to earth and relate in an accessible way. And the information was fantastic. She teaches British wine courses from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. So I taught those, but I had to get the qualifications in order to teach them. So I did uh, level two exam and got 94%. And somebody said to me, well, I'd be really worried if you didn't get 94%. And I thought, okay, fair call. Did level three um, and didn't get 94% in that. But, <laughs> but, um, but that was great. Just I thought, cool, wish I'd known about these qualifications earlier, which I hadn't. Right. And then I, yeah, and then I did the diploma, which is a um, British um, – degree course equivalent basically so they they have of qual the way we have nzqa and with of qual in the uk the wsct diploma is at degree level right and certainly felt kind of challenging in that regard uh so that was a lot of study while working parenting writing teaching um, and I passed that, oh, no, I did it in the two-year minimum, so I passed it about two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great relief to finish and so fantastic to do. 
uh, theory and practical. So lots of blind wine tasting exams at quite a high level. Yeah. And and would you say that, that as a course, you know, I don't know if um, lots of people get all the way through it, but that it's um, even just starting it and doing the um, initial levels is becoming more popular just for people that are interested in, in wine, Definitely. not even doing it as a, you know, a career or, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Definitely. Mm. I mean, I sort of missed the teaching I did for Celia in Auckland, but I, I really wanted to relocate to Wellington, um, and and that's been great for me. And I, I will, I'm sure I will do more teaching further down the track. Those courses are really interesting. We had such a diverse range of students, so a lot of them came because they thought they wanted to work with wine, but equally a huge number of people came because they just love wine and wanted to know a bit more. And, and I think it is a subject that if you really care about what's in your glass and you, you know, you have a glass of Jacob's Creek Riesling for $10 a bottle from the supermarket and you go, actually, you know, this isn't bad. This is actually pretty good. Kind of walks all over a few other wines of that price. And why is it so good? And then you buy something that's triple that price and it's not as good mm. or you you have a cheap Pinot at the supermarket and go, man, that really isn't rocking my boat. And then you have an amazing glass of Peg Bay Pinot from Canterbury. You go, wow, that's incredible. And mm. it's not central Otago. Mm. You know, and it's, I think if you think about what you're drinking at all, and if that is mostly wine, it's quite hard not to become interested in it. So, there are, there are those courses are hugely beneficial to your mind and I think one of the things I like about those courses about studying them and having taught them is that I think they provide something that sort of helps to stop you sliding down the slippery slope of just drinking mindlessly makes you think about what you're putting in your mouth mm. makes you really engage your mind, sip and savor, not just scull it back. You know, I, mm. I don't enjoy drinking wine just for the sake of guzzling it. It doesn't do it for me. I've got to think, I can't even help myself thinking about what I'm drinking now. And I think mm. those kind of courses definitely help in that regard. Yeah, and I think that's that's why they've become popular because it's it's almost like the the you know we talked about earlier with with your journey when when you start drinking wine you start thinking about it and or, or you you hang out with people who um, have more knowledge than you do and you talk you know they they talk to you about it and so it's almost like again at a personal level sort of backfilling that knowledge isn't it going oh okay well so what what is it about this and you, and it's one of those things I think you just start getting drawn. Uh, drawn into it and deeper and deeper and you go oh okay there's this layer and then there's this layer and uh, you know you start off with the the aromas and the, you know and then the the, um, the the tastes and flavors and then being able to drill down into all the you know how, how those are layered up and, and made it just um, it just draws you deeper and it does uh, enhance the experience and which is one of the fascinating things about wine is that it that it just has this this depth to it. Um, and this ability to take you on a bit of a journey, which can be different for each harvest and different for each year, even though Definitely. it can be the same um, the same grower and the same producer. That's right. And there's no such thing as perfection, although sometimes you think, damn, that's <laughs> yeah. close to perfection. But I think there are things that 
like the differences, as you're saying, between harvests. So you have, you know, a rainy year or a hot year or, you know, there's no, not even such a thing all the time as a good year and a bad year. There can be some very bad years and some better ones. But the beauty is in the variety and the beauty is the perfection for me in wine is in its imperfections. And that, I don't mean that as an excuse for wine that's not good. I think the best wines have an edginess that is always going to keep your mouth interested. It's not like a glass of, I mean, I love a gin and tonic every now and then, but and sometimes more now than then, but then I don't have it for ages. But sometimes a gin and tonic is just so boring to me. Unless I'm really in the mood for it, it's just every sip is the same and I get bored. Mm. So, whereas with wine, I think every sip is different. The temperature makes a massive difference to the perception of acidity, freshness, full body, lightness, creaminess, astringency, tannin. Can't stand wines when they're too astringent, but if you have them warmer, they don't taste so much like that. There's so many variables, and it's endlessly fascinating. Mm, mm, mm. No, that's right. That's right. Um, and just where what's interesting you at the at the moment about what you're seeing in New Zealand wine is anything that's um, piqued your interest in the last um, year or so that you're you're seeing developing or have seen come yeah. out or tried yeah definitely I think Marlborough Pinot Noir is amazing I mean and North Canterbury as a wine region just goes from strength to strength and it's so under the radar there are so many great wineries there I mentioned Pegasus Bay before which is definitely one of my favorite New Zealand wineries or certainly you know right at the top of the list for me the consistency the reason is the consistency and style and the delicious intensity concentration and you mentioned that lovely word layers before I get layers of different stuff happening in those wines they never cease to keep me interested um, my mind as well as my palate it's not just sensory it's very interesting the wine making uh, from there and I think they're on a constant quest to you know to try and fine-tune everything they do I think North Canterbury for me with its long autumns just produces some of the most exceptional Rieslings not just in New Zealand but on a more global scale uh, wineries such as Black Estate, Pegasus Bay, Bellbird Spring, um, Greystone. There are so many other great small producers here. They mostly tend to be small. Mm. Um, and by proxy, further north in Marlborough, I think the Pinots from there are exceptional. And also the Rieslings, the occasional Chenin Blanc from people like Forest Estate and Astrolab. Wineries like that keep diversity alive and it's so important that we are more than just a one horse show so it's great for new zealand that sauvignon blanc rules the roost it's now our fifth biggest export earner and it is mostly marlborough sauvignon that is responsible for that um wine as a whole i'm talking about but i think south island has incredible untapped potential with other grapes and pinot noir and a good vintage from a good producer uh, from marlborough has outstanding potential i was at the 25th anniversary of wither hills the other week and they've just launched a new wine called the honorable which is named after an early pioneering farmer called charles wither 
uh, and he his name is the name of the Wither Hills in Marlborough. Mm-hmm. He was briefly a, I think, not very successful member of Parliament, hence the the Honourable. Uh, okay, yeah. And uh, this is an extraordinary Pinot. So good. Yeah. It's slightly on the very high price side, um, $75, mm. which to me is a little too high, but uh, it's a super special wine. And if, if it's in anyone's budget, I think it's going to go places. You know, it's it's really interesting. Small production from a big volume winery that's, you know, doing mostly Sauvignon, but there's other stuff happening. Yeah. What else? A Hawks Base Rau obviously is something yeah. um, that does well, but there's a lot of other diversity. Albarino is originally a Spanish white grape, and there's been lots of experimentation by Kiwi winemakers with bits and pieces. Grunewald, Lena, mm-hmm. Arnais, Albarino. What else have we had? Shannon, unfortunately, seems to have fallen by the wayside because that works well in New Zealand. But these sort of high acid, refreshing white grapes make wines that are ideal for um, for New Zealand's relatively moderate climate, getting warmer by the minute. Uh, and they suit our climate in terms of high quality production. Albarino would be the only one that is really having uptake by the consumer. Yeah. So it's doing well and I like it. I think it's it's great to see something different working well here. Yeah, and I think um, you know Albarino has come up a, a, a little bit for me, and and on the even on the podcast just in the last sort of you know six to twelve months. I think for me one of the other things is that um, it it does seem to grow well here, and there seem to be some um, nice production coming up. But it also uh, appears well with with a lot of New Zealand summer, yeah. I would say, cuisine. Um, it's you know fish or you know, chicken on the barbecue or um, those sorts of things. I think it's um, yeah, it's quite a good pairing for. It's great, um, yeah. Mm. So you've enjoyed having it, have you? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I sort of I found it. Well, originally didn't have a New Zealand one. Um, had one out of I think it was out of Portugal um, a couple oh. of years ago, and that sort of piqued, you know piqued my interest a bit. And then I think um, I think one of the early producers, I think I'm right in saying, it was Cooper's Creek. Um, yes. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, and had one of theirs and thought, hmm, that's quite good. And, and then have tried since tried some other New Zealand producers. And yes, yeah, so, you know, during the summer, just it's it's a nice summer wine to drink. Mm, it is mm. a nice summer wine to drink. Light, mm. fresh, crisp. Um, just ideal. Another yeah. couple of things. I uh, wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't say Riesling because I'm always saying it's my desert island wine. It's one of them. It's top of the list. I'm loving seeing the trend towards drier Riesling. Yeah. Uh, I love Riesling in all its glory. Uh, I don't drink a lot of sweet wine. Medium Riesling, when it's balanced, can be awesome. This is a high acid grape. It needs a bit of residual natural grape sugar sometimes to balance its high acidity and lift the aromas. But drier styles are emerging as a trend. And God, they are just such wines of real beauty, freshness and succulence. And once you just let go of any preconceptions about Riesling and give them a go. Yeah. Man, oh, yeah. you never look back. That's you know, so refreshing, and, like a sorbet in the mouth. And and you've seen those from a number of different regions around around New Zealand. 
Definitely. Yeah. So Martinborough and the Wairapa, yep. very tiny region, only makes like about 2% of New Zealand's wines. But the reason from there is the unsung white grape uh, and, and usually dry, fully dry or, or pretty much there. Uh, Marlborough Forest Estate, again, um, they have just released a library release. So a few older bottles from their cellars uh, of 2009, the Valley's Riesling. God, what a drink now. It's so fresh and it's developed incredible. You know, it's full-bodied, full of lime and peach flavours, but it's dry. It's just sensational. Um, and so they've been moving more towards dry styles. Um, they make the doctor's reason, mm-hmm. which is not technically dry, but is, yeah, it's like an off-dry style. Awesome white. Um, very affordable. I think generally producers who have been making Riesling are just fine-tuning and dropping down sugar levels so that they are the wines are drier. Mm. Um, mm. And another thing I'm seeing, I think, are some interesting rosés. And, and I mean, I know everyone loves rosé and pink wine's pretty and on a, it's on a global role and has been for ages. I don't find it generally that enticing, personally. I'm, I'm happy that it works for, for winemakers and I'm happy to see people enjoying it. But I'm really, really enjoying rosés that are a little edgier than that. There's a bit of an, uh, this trend to orange wine. Some of them are good. Um, but when people are making rosés from grapes that are more full-bodied, I'm loving those. So a couple of wines that I've had recently have been a blend of Syrah with Pinot Noir. That makes the rosé taste drier. Often you can have a Pinot Rosé and it's fully dry, but it doesn't taste dry to me. I like those more tannic varieties in rosé and I'm really enjoying, yeah, just some of those kind of styles. Mm. Mm. And again, again, they're great over summer, aren't they? mm. Yeah, yeah. There's an Italian one that I've been buying from Regional Wines in Wellington, which I do a bit of work for them. And, uh, oh, man, what a wine. Um, it's made from Terraldigo, which is a really quirky, weird Italian grape. They don't make it every year. When their top wine isn't up to spec, they'll make a dark-coloured, very pale, like a wine that you can see through, but it's kind of reddish pale rather than pink. And it's very edgy. Oh man, that that's sensational! It's so delicious. Yeah, oh, very good. Um, and we've um, we've got to that point in the um, in the podcast just to ask you that uh, question around um, if you could have any wine um, with anyone um, at any time and anywhere, uh, who, where, and what would it be? Oh wow. That is uh, that's such a tricky question. Well, and I, I think thought, for most people, there's not one answer. Um, yeah. But it's you know it's it's um, yeah it's yeah there's often um, quite a few different. Um, yeah, you know, options. I was thinking that I don't have just one answer, but no. I guess one of the most incredible wines that I've had, in fact, quite a few times I've been lucky enough to have Bollinger Champagne RD and the letters RD stand for recently disgorged. So these are wines that have been 
aging in the bottle, sometimes for decades, on their yeast lees, which keep the wine inside the bottle fresh. And then they, the winery will, to order, disgorge them. So get rid of the yeast uh-huh. lees. Yeah, and I mean, they're very expensive wines and they are made to order uh, from great vintages. And wow, I mean, the, the sex appeal, the sexiness of champagne, um, the deliciousness of Bollinger, it really is a next level wine. Yeah. And super special, unpredictable, you don't quite know what you're going to get, you just know it's going to be great of the Bollinger RDs. That's great. So I choose that. I'd have it on a mountain side uh, because I love tramping and I love looking, I love being outside to have a nice wine, probably in some beautiful reed or glassware actually. And the person, well, I'd have to say with my partner, uh, but then sometimes I think I'd love to have a glass of wine, something rustic and dark and delicious, like a really amazing Malbec outside on a mountainside with someone like Oscar Wilde, just right. to listen to him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, see how he described the wine in The View. Absolutely, yeah. Well, The View and just his general conversation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good. Oh, yeah, that's great. Hey, thanks, Joelle. I appreciate, um, appreciate you taking the time, and um, thanks for your patience. It took us a little while to get the Skype working, but we got there in the end. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. No, that's very good. All right, cheers for that. Great. Okay, bye now. Bye. You've been listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast, and we've been speaking with Joelle Thompson, who's a journalist, wine writer, and author based just outside of Wellington in New Zealand. If you'd like to find out more about Joelle, you can go to her website, which is uh, www.joellethompson.com, J-O-E-L-L-E-T-H-O-M-S-O-N.com. And be sure to check out some of the other New Zealand wine podcasts where we've talked to other people involved in the New Zealand wine industry, winemakers and vineyard owners. And also you can have a look at podcast.nz where you can find some other great listening. So uh, thanks for listening in this time around. You can also find us on Instagram, just search on NZ Wine Podcast. And we look forward to your company again very shortly. Hey, Kona Mai, bye for now.